0: He gets small, he gets small, small regard. Il va sans <laughs> dire, enfin. Que nous ne croyons pas qu'on puisse sérieusement exiger d'un traducteur de langue française, qu'il évite des longueurs de style pour cette seule raison que la langue française s'en accommode mal actuellement. Well, that's it. Uh, that is, it's a point of view. Uh, he believes it. He Teaches his students that this is the correct way to, the only correct way to translate. He has condemned Arthur Whaley's translation and uh, many others, including my own efforts, as mere paraphrases, not translations at all. And uh, there it is. Now, if I may, I'll read very briefly Arthur Whaley's uh, remarks on the same question, which, although they were written, I think before Agonaz, almost written as if they were in answer to him. This book, by the way, it has um, just come out in England. It's a book about Arthur Whaley, um, which has a great deal about, well, a lot of it is, in fact, translation. But there's also quite a lot of writing by him and other people about translation, about the theory and practice of translation. So I think it's a book that will be of, uh, of interest to um, anyone who does this sort of work. It's coming out here next, um, next month. The, um, the um, essay in question, some of you may have read, uh, called Notes on Translation. Uh, and this is what he wrote, which seems, as I say, almost to be answering Agenard. A French scholar whom I greatly admire, and this is not Agonard, by the way, <laughs> it's another <laughs> French scholar. Uh, a French scholar wrote recently with regard to translators Qu'ils s'effacent derrière les textes, et ceux-ci, s'ils ont été vraiment compris, parleront d'eux-mêmes. Qu'ils s'effacent derrière les textes, et ceux-ci, s'ils ont été vraiment compris, parleront d'eux-mêmes. Except in the rather rare case of plain, concrete statements, such as, the cat chases the mouse, there are seldom sentences that have exact word-for-word equivalence in another language. It becomes a question of choosing between various approximations. One can't, for example, say in English, let them efface themselves behind the texts. One has to say something like, they should efface themselves, leaving it to the texts to speak and so on. I have always found that it was I, not the texts, that had to do the talking. And then comes this magnificent sentence, which I think about so often when I'm working. Hundreds of times I have sat for hours in front of texts, the meaning of which I understood perfectly, and yet been unable to see how they ought to be put into English in such a way as to re-embody not merely a series of correct dictionary meanings, But also the emphasis, the eloquence of the original. Toute recherche esthétique, the French scholar continues, va contre la bonne foi du traducteur. See, this writer, this French writer, belongs entirely to the the, the school of Aguenard. Toute recherche esthétique va contre la bonne foi du traducteur. I would rather say that the true work of the translator begins with recherche esthetique. What comes before that, knowledge of the foreign language, is of course essential as a foundation, but it is a matter of linguistics and has nothing to do with the art that I am discussing. There do of course exist texts in which only logical meaning and not feeling is expressed. But particularly in the Far East, they are exceedingly rare the appeal, even in philosophical texts has always been to emotion rather than to logic so here I think we have two extremely good statements of the of the two uh, uh, diametrically opposed views on the art of translation I think I've already made it clear which uh, which side uh, I'm on uh, if the Tale of Genji had been translated into English on the principles used by this gentleman, it would be known by just as many people in England and America as, as people in France who know the Tale of Genji, which is probably about, what, 50, 100? At the most. The tale of Genji is virtually unknown in France and will remain unknown even if this whole work had been finished, it would remain unknown unless someone like Whaley came along and did a translation a real translation Now one can call it paraphrase if one wants to I think it's a, I think it's a quibble uh, it's a a neat way of dismissing the Whaley type of translation to call it not not say this is not a translation it is a paraphrase and one can f- if one wants, one can admit that one say, all right, it is a paraphrase. In that case, the only things that are worth doing for literature are paraphrases. If this is a translation, if this is what a translation really is, then it is useless. Anyhow, that is my opinion and that's all I'm going to say. And uh, I hope you'll have a chance to uh, st- study classical Japanese. As you'll see, it's quite, it's really quite simple. As Whaley said in the introduction to his translation of Japanese poetry, uh, a few weeks should suffice for mastering the basic essentials of classical Japanese. <laughs> 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 uh, if, if Professor Morris agrees, we we'll, uh, have just one or two uh, questions or comments, if they exist, and then we'll be off to lunch. Mr. Howard the <laughs> you about Professor Morris in, in the sense of this conference. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there is any, going to be the slightest disagreement uh, <clears throat> from you. I, I merely wish to suggest that uh, if you examine what are called uh, university productions of texts today, for instance, the one that Edwin Wilson made such a fuss about correctly, I believe, uh, the Emerson Journals produced by uh, graduate departments. You will see, I suspect, why universities are having precisely the troubles you suspect you
1: anatomized for us in coming here today. I think there is some
0: connection, indeed, hmm. between an unreadable text and a dense department. I quite agree. Any
1: other questions or comments? We'll have guides to take you off to lunch if you're in any doubt as to whether you're one of the uh, people invited to
0: the lunch for the participants. Check with the executive secretary. We begin here again, sliding along from two to two thirty in there somewhere. Thank you. Talk about the word in Sanskrit in relation to translation, and I think this whole business of introducing people is nonsense. Because the actual talk is a far better introduction. Anything I would like to say is uh, I have one of his novels by my bed all the time and I keep on reading it and it's an absolutely stunning book. And he's written altogether three novels and two I don't put beside the bed but, but one is, I think, far superior to the others and it's absolutely remarkably how rich and intense is the feeling of India that comes through. Now I think what he would do is bring that feeling into the word in the sense.
1: You we'll come a little nearer because my voice will not go so far. We'll have a more intimate talk, you know. Well. Thing. Do yes. <laughs> All right, that's right. After the very brilliant and performances by people that I've observed here, I'm afraid mine is going to be very unscholarly, and uh, not really what I would have liked to have done because I am really not a scholar of Sanskrit, though I love and enjoy Sanskrit, as no language in the world. So I'll tell you why my insufficiency is so great as we go on with what I'm going to tell you about the difficulty of the Sanskrit language as such, and therefore much more of what it is to translate from that language. About the beginnings of the 19th century, a very important event took place in the city of Paris. An Englishman, who had been in India for some time, was caught in the Napoleonic Wars, and he could neither go back to England or go forward to India. And He was a, an intelligent, sensitive man, and he found that he knew a language which nobody in, Sa- in Paris or in Europe ever knew, and so he went to the Sorbonne and started talking of this extraordinary language called Sanskrit. And scholars got excited over it, because they had never really known that Sanskrit language was of the same origin as Greek and Latin, if not an elder sister of Greek and Latin, it was indeed the eldest Indo-Aryan language, or Indo-Germanic language. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Is it all right? Or I can come and sit in front, mm. if you like, stand. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Better. coughs> and so, once this discovery was made of Sanskrit, scholars immediately Began to investigate the language. And so the School of Sanskrit, of Oriental Studies in Sanskrit, started in Paris. And people came from Germany. Brother Schlegel came from Germany. And people came from England afterwards. And the discovery of Sanskrit was, it was proclaimed at the time, perhaps as important as the discovery of Greek in the 14th century. I'm not sure that this is not a real prophecy. It may well be true that this discovery of Sanskrit may be something as important as the discovery of Sanskrit, perhaps of Greek, and perhaps more important. I do not know. Then, about the end of towards the third part of the 19th century, a whole school of German scholars discovered Indian philosophy. Meanwhile, as many of you probably know, the German Romantic movement had India as its main myth. The myth of India played the most decisive part in the development of German Romanticism, but it was an in India which never existed. It was an in India that was caught from stray books one book was translated from Tamil into Latin and published in Holland, and a garbled version was discovered in Germany. And This Tamil version itself was made from Sanskrit, and that was the Upanishads. So this way, German romanticism caught hold of some aspect of India and made this myth of India the most important of its themes, and so all the wild imagination of Germany made extraordinary shapes of this primary, Inspiration garbled from India and made it its own. And from there, this romantic movement, as you know, spread to France and and England. And Victor Hugo and the and Lamartine, as you know, wrote hymns on Shiva and Parvati and Vishnu and all the Indian gods. (coughs) Mainly their own inventions, because there were very few translations at the time. But translations began to come more and more. In fact, I have seen the Bibliothèque Nationale. The translation of the Bhagavad Purana, uh, published on Napoleon III, with the result that Sanskrit became quite a serious study among scholars, and so discovery, but the discovery of Indian philosophy was so great at one time that Paul Dyson, who was a friend of Nietzsche, became had written one of the finest books on Vedanta, and as some of you probably know, Dyson and the Nietzsche, when he was on the on the day, famous day in Turin, when he was going back to his hotel and looked at the horse and was became mad suddenly, one went to his room and found he was reading a Purana from Sanskrit, in, not in Sanskrit but in translation of Sanskrit. <coughs> so Indian philosophy became a had tremendous prestige towards the end of the 19th century, and then, for, for Indian India. Would, absorbed in politics, the world was absorbed in politics, international politics. So nothing came from India of real importance till after the Second World War, Indian music became very influential. They discovered Indian music much too much and too easily and with too much facility and too much romanticism again. But how well it was Indian music and musicians have told me how important it is. All this I say only to tell you there's one other thing, one of the important contributions that India can make, which is still undiscovered. It is the science of the world. I think the science of the world combines the philosophy of music and the philosophy, Indian philosophy as such, and the originality of Sanskrit language. And I do not think that anything in Western tradition or Western science of the word, including modern linguistics, has anything at all, even in the smallest degree, comparable to the originality of the Sanskrit science of the word. And this Sanskrit science of the word is so linked with our philosophy but I'm afraid I'll have to take you to very subtle philosophical discussions. And I'm sure that after I have given the talk, you'll we'll have lots of questions to ask me, which shows you how difficult it would be for anybody to attempt or even to dream of translating Sanskrit. In fact, I think <coughs> what Malarme and Joyce were trying to do was if they had known the tradition of India in the science of the world, they'd already found that in these texts and already highly accomplished. And with all the techniques of achieving it. And therefore, this would be, I think, a great contribution that the intellectuals of Europe would could find in going to Sanskrit the originals in finding this science of the world. The day the Western world discovers the Indian science of the world, word would perhaps lead modern literature to other possibilities, apprehended by Malarme first and then followed partly by Joyce, but without the philosophical background that the Indian tradition offers. And thus would make the origin and effect of the word something more than of linguistic adventure or of intellectual accident. The word as such would become, rightly understood, the very means of liberation. The very means not only of salvation, but of liberation. The writer here becomes not merely in his in the proper sense of the word but one dedicated to the search of the ultimate truth, that is, Brahman. And the precision of the word thus becomes a sadhana, a spiritual exercise. The magic of Mallarmé would still have its wonders, the Joyce's invention would still have its rich immediacy, not by a horizontal statement, as it were, but by a vertical one, something that Valerie, was trying to perform, and did not really achieve. The Sanskrit writer knew the word had a finality that only a free man could have. By free, I mean the liberated man. Thus, Mallarmé's ideal poet and the poetic language, Le le Livre or Le Livre, already existed in Sanskrit. And the key to it was there for any serious poet to discover and practise. What, then, is a word? In Sanskrit, we call shabda, the word is called shabda, and shabda is both sound and word, just as in in Greek you say logos, and in, this, in the Gospel of John you say first there was a the word in that sense, the world, in fact the first movement from the undifferentiated consciousness to the world, the world was not a bo- an object but the sound, the primary sound. So s- the sound created the world, and therefore to go back to the undifferentiated you must go back to sound. In science, we call shabda both sound and word. In a small dictionary that I have, it says the, the word shabda is the object and the sense of hearing, and the property of ether, and also the note of birds and of men, and ultimately noise in general. So even to this day, when you say shabda in my house, I say don't make too much noise. You say don't make too much shabda to the child, but. When you talk of shabda in philosophy, it means the the ultimate Brahman. So the same word means two different things at two different levels. This is what we are going to do. And this also is the sound of a musical instrument. So when a musician is teaching music to his students, she will talk of shabda. Shabda means sound again. A A word sound or significant word is both a word sound or sound word is what Shabda means. But from where does the word arise? Arise. Now we have to follow very closely this argument because this is a subtle philosophical background. It arise every word arises, of course, from silence. For before the word, there was silence. And after the word, there is silence again. And now, from silence arises an intimation of some feeling as yet nameless. And of course, this would apply to all words of whatever nature and of whatever language. Because from silence arises a nameless impulse. The nameless feeling or impulse. That is sound. That is that is sound. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's a star, sound still it says the same thing. Uh, the, nameless mm-hmm. silence, no, the nameless feeling or image, which silence—no—the nameless feeling or intimation, the silence has pushed up, now enters into the realm of the mind. And here in the mind, that silence has pushed an intimation into a picture. The picture then articulated as sound silence is finally postulated by the tongues with a short or a long note, and that's the word. And again, this note is heard by someone through his ear. The ear takes the message through the mind into the realms of mental awareness, from where it again descends into primal silence Dying where alone is understanding taken as an experience. Unless the sound of the word has, is dead, there is still no, no understanding. So, where the sound that was propagated by the speaker has not died into the silence of the hearer, it is still not a word for the person who has heard. That is to say, where alone is understanding, there is experience. and That, that is to say, where the sound of the word has died into silence, it is from there that understanding arises. It is therefore in silence that the word is understood. It is from silence that the word has arisen. So it is from one silence to the other that communication is made. Here we have to be very subtle. The question then to be asked is, Is there anyone, anybody there, by anybody I mean where there is absolute silence in one, where there is absolute silence is one, are you present there? This is the question. Who are you when there is absolute silence in yourself? Could there be then the one who hears me also has absolute silence in him or her? So you have an absolute silence, I have an absolute silence, from which sound arises and you understand. Now the question is, can there be two absolutes? <laughs> Obviously not. If there not can be two absolutes, there's only silence that talks to silence and there is nobody. I just want to say very humbly. This is not pure philosophy. This is really a question of reality. This is we are we are talking serious things in a serious way. So that where there is no body, a word emerges from me. Where there is no body in you, you understand. Then after that, you say, "I have heard it and I have spoken it." The hearer and the speaker come afterwards. The speaker saying, "I spoke," the hearer saying, "I heard," but. Nobody was present as the body of one or the other. There seems where there is silence. Since where there is silence, there could be no formulation of thought. So no person at all was present. Everything was impersonal. That is to say, beyond the personal. Beyond the personal, there is nobody. Hence, there is something, but no one there. There, by the. Fo- a sound first merges as a possibility. That's something where there is no one, could not be different for different people. For differentiation itself is the result of the person. Without an individual person, there could be no differentiation. So differentiation is created afterwards by the ego, by the person. There where there is no one but isness is, then is the origin and end of the sound and so of the word. So wherever there is only isness and no one, there is where word arises in every being and understood by every being. Let us look at it from another point of view. Just as form goes into the make of seeing, as the great sage has said, that is to say, you see a chair. The form of the chair is a part of your seeing; otherwise, you cannot see. And seeing without seeing, there is no form. So, since form and seeing are co-existent, nobody has seen a chair because you have to divide form and seeing from each other to be able to make a chair. A chair. So, the individual or a person has to come and divide form and seeing and make a chair a chair. This is the problem. So, just as form goes into the make, very make of seeing, and seeing goes into the make of form, in fact, since no one can cut one from the other, that is to say, there is no seer separate from the object seen, so is it with sound. There is no hearer separate from the sound, So the hearer and the sound are one. You can try it. I have sometimes tried to hear bird sounds or music. And when you try to follow only the sound and not become the hearer but the sound, where are you? That's great music. Where you become the sound and not you. And And then the musician, the music and the hearer are one. Therefore, how could one say one has seen an object, one has heard a sound? Hence, the dictionary meaning of the sound is the object seen, or the sense heard, or the sense sense of hearing. The object that one has has seen an object, or one has heard a sound. So in Sanskrit, the word for object is beautiful. It simply says, drishyam. Dushyam means an object that comes into being because I have seen. Otherwise, there is no object. And this is, this is, this is, Dushyam is an ordinary word. It is not a highly philosophical word. This is an ordinary word. So, and then we will come to to other words later on to tell you, in in our very language, we have all these delicacies expressed in our, and because Sanskrit goes into the makeup of most of our languages, this is in practice today. What then is the world? If the word, heard, and the sound, and understanding are all one, what then is the world? World. The world is just a playful division of one single experience for one's enjoyment. So that's why, according to the Indian tradition, the world is play. You enjoy yourself by dividing yourself into seer and seen. Because there is no seer, there is no seen, but you can why not give yourself the pleasure of saying there is seer and seen, go up and play with it? <coughs> and we have got a beautiful word for it, we call it Leela. Leela means play. The world is just a playful division of one single experience for one's enjoyment, and we call it that enjoyment, rasa. Rasa means flavor, like the flavor of a mango, the flavor of a good meal, and so when you, when you, even to this day we have got a wonderful dish in South India we called rasam, which means well-flavoured, a well-flavoured dish. But the same word means the flavour of the absolute and the flavour of poetry. And so rasika is the one who enjoys rasa. The enjoyment of artistic experience is one who has the taste of the absolute itself. So unless you can enjoy the absolute, you have really not understood, rasa. Hence, is sound nothing but the absolute itself. And therefore, in the Indian tradition, we have got this beautiful word, Shabda Brahman means the absolute as the word. It's called Shabda Brahman, that is to say, when you want to go to spiritual experience through poetry, Brahman or the absolute becomes the word. So the word, and there's a special name for him. Like through music, we call it Nada Brahman. Nada means the science of breath. Through breathing, and therefore through the control of the voice, you go to Brahman also. So, Shabda Brahman is the absolute scene from the point of view of the poet.